Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your commitment to us. Thank you for the foundation that you are under us and the foundation of our life, unshakable and immovable, even when we doubt that you never cease to be that, and we're grateful for that. And even as Pastor Jonathan shared, Lord, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. Pray that you keep us growing in our knowledge of you, and as a result of that, of our faith in you. And we pray, Lord, that as we study your word this morning, that this time in your word would accomplish that, among other things. Speak to us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, through your word this morning. We've come to hear your voice, and we ask that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Fighting a little bit of a cold here today, and I took, I don't know, I I don't get a cold very often, so I take these medicines sometimes out of the cabinet, and I don't know what drains you or dries you or what... So I took one thing that I'm hoping is a dryer, and, um, but it has, the, it has the side effect of drowsiness. And so if I fall asleep, um, you are free to dismiss and um, make your way out. I do have a reoccurring dream. One is being washed down a sewer drain. Um, I am chased by bears every so often. There's a high school one or two that is in there. And I have a, <clears throat> a reoccurring dream that I'm teaching. And I fall asleep, but I continue to teach. <laughs> and then I wake up, and there's that unsettling feeling. I don't have the slightest idea what I have been saying while I was asleep. But you're all sitting there, and, and so that's why I give you permission. If I fall asleep, and especially... If I continue speaking in that condition, you're free uh, to leave. Well, Peter brings his first epistle to a close with these final three verses. And I think all of us who like to read, we, as we read, it's always of great interest to us, um, the final pages of a book or the final couple paragraphs of a book because it's of great interest to discover how in the world is this author going to wrap everything up related to sometimes the hundreds of pages that have preceded it. And so sometimes you've got these loose ends that they're going to tie up and then everything crystallizes and now the whole story makes sense. And very often the author with a desire not to have the meaning of the book be misunderstood. He will, in, he or she will in some kind of a clever way, it won't be, you know, repetitive, but they will state things in a certain way in their clothes that brings everything together. And they want to be sure that when you put that book down, you did not miss the reason for which the book was written, because otherwise it's a waste of time if the author is endeavoring to make a particular point or educate us in a certain way and we get to the end and we don't have the slightest idea what it is that they were saying. And of course, communication is the great purpose behind writing and it's the great focus of 
of really any author to make that clear. And Peter does that here, but he also at the same time uh, ties up some loose ends. And so before we get to his main thrust and conclusion to the epistle, we want to uh, give some attention to these loose ends that he does tie up. You notice in verse 12 that he identified the secretary who he had uh, who had written the letter as he had dictated it to him, a man by the name of Sylvanus. That's the way they would do it in those days. Uh, someone would dictate something, a secretary would write that down for them. Uh, the Apostle Paul did this regularly and his epistles made mention of it. And then Peter here, <clears throat> following the same method, and the man who took down the dictation and the writing of it, uh, though Peter is the author of it, is a man by the name of Sylvanus. And this is probably the man that we know more commonly in the Bible as a, a, a man called Silas, uh, mentioned very, very frequently in the book of Acts. And uh, Silas was one of the real pillars of the early church. And Silas is the uh, Arama- Aramaic name for Sylvanus. And so Silas accompanied the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, uh, following kind of a falling out between uh, Barnabas and Paul over the issue of Barnabas' nephew by the name of Mark on the first missionary journey they made. Very, very difficult circumstances. They faced a lot of physical problems, and they also faced a lot of spiritual opposition. There came a point in that missionary journey where Mark, who was a younger man, decided that this was too much for him. He abandoned them on that mission, uh, missionary journey and returned home. And then now as they're beginning the second one, Barnabas wants to include Mark once again, kind of give him a second chance. The Apostle Paul is very adamant in not allowing him to journey with him again, not because Paul wasn't a man that gave second chances to people, but because uh, you really, on any missions trip that you take today, whether you take a missions trip to Mexico or anywhere in the world, um, you really are careful about taking marginal people into those environments because those environments can not only be very difficult physically, but the physical difficulties pale in comparison to the warfare that they're going to face and then the problems that can occur if a person has kind of a spiritual or an emotional or mental uh, meltdown out in the middle of all of it. So the Apostle Paul said, no, I don't want him to come. Uh, Barnabas was just as adamant that he be allowed. And the two men split over that particular issue. Barnabas went out on a, a, his own missionary journey with uh, Mark and then Paul uh, then was joined by this very Silas to, to go out on his second missionary journey. So in this man Silas, you have a man who was uh, a great, great asset and a participant in both the ministries of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. That's remarkable stuff that he must have been in the middle of and seen and experienced And his name really, really is gold uh, in the scriptures. You notice in verse 13 that Peter greeted the recipients of the letter on behalf of she who is in Babylon, elect together with you. And it seems best to understand this as 
referring to the Christians who were still remaining in the city of Rome with Peter, uh, despite the greatness of the persecution. There is no record that uh, the Apostle Peter ever went to Babylon, uh, and yet there's a great historical record that he spent significant time in Rome and was ultimately martyred there uh, for his faith. So it isn't unlikely because of the greatness of the persecution against Christians and the Roman Empire at the time, and where would that be centered more greatly than in the city of Rome, where Christians are being fed to lions at the time, uh, than for him to not say, from the church here in Rome, you know, God bless you. And, and also he says, he uses this reference of Babylon as kind of a disguised reference to Rome in order to protect the church there and Peter from uh, even greater persecution of Christians that was occurring under Caesar Nero. He also sent them a greeting on behalf of Mark, who he described in verse 13 as his son. Again, this is the previously mentioned Mark, who had failed so badly on that first missionary journey, and now he is a, a, a great uh, assistance to the Apostle Peter in his ministry. We know from other parts of the Bible that ultimately he became a great help to Paul once again. And as things kind of settled down, as they so often do with time in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul ultimately, late in his life, actually personally requested that Mark would be sent to assist him in his, uh, his ministry. And so uh, when Peter refers to Mark as my son here, Mark was not his physical son, but his spiritual son. Paul had, I mean, Peter had been had a close relationship with Mark and was probably the most instrumental person in his spiritual development. He also declared that they were to greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, before all of you single men get excited about this, in verse 14, <clears throat> and of course in many cultures around the world today, you still greet one another with a kiss. Um, but it's cheek, uh, you know, kissing on the cheek. Uh, what he's referring to here is not only uh, kissing on the cheek, maybe both cheeks is a greeting, uh, but it would have been male to male and female to female. To female. But it all communicated uh, the same thing. And it was just an outward physical gesture communicating that in the midst of all of this persecution we're facing, all of this difficulty that we're facing, Peter was saying that we're to, we are to maintain a deep, and not only a deep love for one another, but an expressed love for one another. It would be like a hug in our culture or a genuine, uh, firm handshake in our culture that communicates, I care about you, we care about you, and there's a warmth uh, to it. And, and just kind of communicating, you may not be loved by anybody else in the whole wide world, uh, or anywhere else in the whole wide world because of your faith in Christ, but here you are loved. And so that importance of genuine love for one another, because when things push really comes to shove historically, and it's not so much yet the case in the United States of America, but it's the case in much of the rest of the world, 
um, the only people that you can depend on as a Christian are other Christians. And so there is this realization that we're in this alone, the persecution is mounted against us. And you think about Christians in uh, Islamic countries or where there's revolution to overthrow countries into Islam and the persecution so greatly directed toward Christians as a result. And you come to view every Christian, if it's walking with the Lord, as a great treasure, in need of encouragement, needing one another. And so this was a way of really um, communicating love to one another and a love that we really need to know that we have from the rest of the body of Christ. He then closes with a prayer for their peace in verse 14, which, of course, is always appreciated by anyone when we find ourselves in great trial, when someone prays and asks the Lord to bless us with uh, peace. And when Peter speaks here and he says, Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus, this isn't like wishful thinking or I hope that this happens. He's actually praying that peace upon them. And we do that sometimes when... um, The Bible talks about, as Christians, when we walk into a house, um, and that house is is one that is kind of worthy in a sense of it's not antagonistic towards us or our faith or that kind of a thing, that we bring a peace into that environment, and we can pronounce peace upon, upon people. So when we say, God bless you, those aren't empty words that we're speaking to another person, we're We're asking a prayer of God's blessing upon that person's life, or may God's peace be with you. That's a real thing that's being declared. And so uh, Peter wasn't just uh, saying this and saying, well, that would just be a a pretty nice way to finish the letter. Um, It is a prayer. Jesus said in John 16, he said, These things I've spoken unto you, that in me, that is singular me, you might have peace. He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So the source, the lone source of true peace in the world is in Jesus himself, because again, only he is bigger than all the things that would rob us of our our peace. And so in this world, our need is not for a peace. Sometimes we want peace that comes with the absence of difficulty. Well, that's a future thing for us. That's called heaven. That's not the world that we live in right now. So we don't need a peace that comes with the absence of difficulty because that's not the world that we live in. We need a peace that is greater than the difficulties that we face in this world and the difficulties of this world. And that's the peace that Jesus offers. But it's only found in him in a relationship with him, and turning to him and talking with him. And so the Bible teaches that we have a peace that the world doesn't know, and it is a peace, the peace of knowing that for all of our difficulties, we're right with God. And that counts as a lot. The Bible says that we have peace with God. And so the war is over between me and God. When I surrendered my life to the Lord, he wasn't at war with me. I was at war with him related to my sin and my rebellion. And when I committed my life to him, submitting myself to the salvation that's found in his son, now all of a sudden I have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace 
with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we have peace with God, the Bible says we also have the peace of God. Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, how peaceful do you think God is? I think he's pretty peaceful. I don't think he's on any medications uh, or that he's pacing up there and just, you know, a nervous wreck over the 2012 elections or what's going to happen really anywhere in, in life. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the Lord is very, very peaceful. Um, You tend to be peaceful when you have all power and you have all knowledge. Almost all all of the things, situations that rob us of our peace are because we lack power to affect change in our situation and of ourselves. Or we lack the knowledge that we'd like to have. There's unknowns in our life. But God doesn't deal with unknowns and he doesn't look at anything in certainly his life or anything in the whole universe, including our lives, that is beyond his power is unknown to him. So he he experiences a tremendous peace. And God is always willing, Paul wrote there in Philippians, to exchange our anxiousness with his peace. And how does that happen? Well, it happens through prayer. Again, as Paul wrote, be anxious for nothing. All right, well, (laughs) I'll try. Can you steer me in the right direction? All right. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, that means letting God know about our needs, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And that's the answer to peace. There's an old story that I really like, and I read it years ago, about a uh, pioneer in the pioneer days of aviation, and there was a man who was making a flight around the world, and so the planes, of course, had to kind of jump, and they don't have the giant jets like we have today, and so they would go from city to city and airport to airport, and He was landing in that kind of way, taking these jumps that were just, you know, four hours and a little bit more than that, and these jumps in the plane. And he stopped in one particular airport and got gassed up, fueled up, and supplied, and then took flight once again. And about two hours into the flight, he began to hear a gnawing uh, in the back of the plane, and he realized that what had happened is while they had been on the ground, a rat had gotten into the plane and it was gnawing on something. I don't know if you've ever had a rat gnawing in your walls or under the house or whatever, but the first thing you think about is, okay, are they going to gnaw through some kind of an electrical something and we've got some real problems? And that's what he thought of. Is he going to gnaw through some critical cables related to the functioning of this plane? It was two hours to the next airport, two hours back to the other one. He didn't know what to do. And so he took the plane, began to uh, cause it to ascend a thousand feet, another thousand feet, another thousand feet, realizing the rat is a rodent. And he took it up to 20,000 feet. And pretty soon the gnawing ceased because of the lack of oxygen. Uh, the rat died and uh, couldn't, you know, survive that atmosphere. And so a couple of hours the man 
landed the plane safely and found the rat was dead. And worry really is like a destructive rat. And the one environment it cannot survive in is the elevated place that prayer takes us to. And when we take our prayers and our needs up into the heavenlies, up into that atmosphere that, that prayer allows us to go, then pretty soon they die. Sometimes people say, well, how long should I pray until the rat dies, until my anxiousness or my worries have been replaced by the peace of God, however long that takes. It will happen. It's just a matter of, of how, uh, how long it, it will before it does take. And so here we are, we're reminded by Peter that we're not alone in this world. We do have a heavenly Father who's looking out for us and he's caring for us. Now all of that brings us to the main thrust of Peter's closing here. And it is found in verse 12 in these words. He said, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. He said, this is the true grace of God. What's he referring to there? What that phrase is referring to is the contents of this letter as a whole. In other words, Peter is saying, this letter describes the truth about what it means to be a Christian in the fallenness of this world. And so when you live faithfully for Christ in this world, and it results in persecution, or it results in rejection, or it results in suffering, or it results in a difficulty, difficulties in your life that those that don't follow Christ don't know anything about, then don't don't think that you're weird or you're unusual or there's something wrong with you. This is just the way uh, that, that it is. And when you face suffering and persecution because you are a Christian, it's not because there's something wrong with Christianity or you. It just re- reveals that there's something wrong with this world. It When the world persecutes a Christian simply for knowing Christ and being conformed into the image of Christ, that's the world testifying against itself. And so it's never a reflection on Christianity. It's always a reflection upon the condition of the world. In the same way that when a person rejects Jesus and rejects his salvation, that is never a reflection upon Jesus or the salvation that he provides us with. That is always a very bad reflection upon the person that reflects Jesus, uh, that rejects Jesus. There is no good reason for rejecting Jesus. I want us just to remember some of the lessons that we've learned as we've gone through the letter, what it is exactly that Peter calls the true grace of God. And it is to remember that no matter, all the way back in chapter 1, that no matter what our trials or difficulties, we possess a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We possess a hope that has an answer for death and a victory over death. That's a priceless thing to possess. If Christianity offered us nothing more than that, 
That would be enough. That our Christian, our salvation is a sure salvation, Peter wrote to us, a salvation that lays safely beyond any of the circumstances that we face in life or ever will face in life. No circumstance, no rejection, no trial, no suffering ever puts our salvation in any kind of jeopardy or danger. It's a settled salvation. It's a sure salvation. We have an inheritance in heaven, and we will be kept in order to receive that inheritance because God, by his own power, not by our power, is personally going to keep us through all we face in this life and deliver us into that future heaven. We have God's word to provide us with the wisdom that we need for clear thinking and for decision-making and maintaining perspective in the middle of trials when we're prone to make quick or emotional decisions that just make things worse. He reminded us that we're to be holy because our God is holy, and holiness is always vital in our walk with God as Christians, but it's especially vital during times of deep trial because it's only as we're walking obediently with the Lord that we can have the confidence in God and in His blessing that God knows that we need to have. It's a terrible thing to go into a deep trial and to be living in sin or distant from God, and then then the person can never be sure. You know, they, they, they need an intimate relationship with God right now, but they haven't had one for months or for years. But as we live just a simple, holy, obedient life, that kind of relationship that we could always need but could acutely need in an instant is is the life that we're already living in. Peter reminded us that disobedience or backsliding or compromise or disloyalty to the Lord are not options for us in order to escape a trial. So, all right, I want my family to like me, so I'm going to disobey this passage of Scripture. Or I want more friends, so I'm going to ignore this passage of Scripture, or whatever it might be. And disobeying God and His Word is not an option to escape difficulty that being faithful to the Lord has brought into our lives. Peter informed us that we'll be rejected by some people because of our faith in Christ and our faithfulness to Christ but that we're to make sure that our expectations concerning the Christian life are biblical, that we cannot expect people to treat Jesus living inside of us as Christians any differently than it treated him 2,000 years ago, and it treated him poorly. He taught us that the best way to silence slander is through a godly life, through good works. He taught us that God desires us to be the most outstanding citizens in any nation that we live in in the whole wide world because every part of our lives as Christians are to ref, uh, do reflect upon Jesus. Peter taught that the attitude and the work ethic of the Christian employee should be second to no one, that we should be the hardest working and, and most respectful and valued uh, employees in, in any place that we work in to the glory of our God. He also told us that godly Christ-reflecting and Christ-honoring marriages are another way uh, to put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
Peter instructed us how to successfully navigate persecution that comes from uh, the area in life that is the most hurtful for us, and that is family members or uh, close friends, our old partners in crime, when they reject us for our faith in Christ. He wrote of the importance of living with a consciousness that the Lord could return at any moment and the importance of being serious and watchful in our prayers while we wait. He also wrote concerning our relationship with fellow Christians that God will give us a love uh, that we need for one another, a love that can even cover a multitude of sins, that hard times are not a reason to stop serving the Lord. And sometimes things get very, very difficult, and we say, all I need to do is just stop being obedient to God's call upon my life, and this spiritual warfare could end, but that is not an option for us. He explained what's required in an elder in order to properly tend God's people. He told us that God actively resists the proud, and he actively gives grace to the humble, and so the wise man will choose to humble himself And then he commanded each of us to cast our cares upon God with the knowledge that as we do so, we are casting our cares on uh, into the hands of one who really, really cares for us. And then finally he instructed us on how to recognize and resist and to rejoice in spiritual warfare. So that's the faith that he declared uh, to us. And then he gives us the exhortation to stand in it. In the New King James, it says, excuse me there, he said, um, briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. You could just as easily put a period there and the remainder of the sentence be translated, now stand in it. And that's what he's calling us to do, is to stand in this, to stand firm, to stand immovable in this, that is, in our faith. And the idea is, at whatever the cost. Now, you think about Peter when he writes this thing, and it's not easy to be used by the Lord to write these epistles, I'm sure. And, and, but here he is telling people to stand in a faith that at the moment is costing them their lives to do that. That's a difficult thing to do to another human being. We say, all right, I'll tell myself to stand because I bear the consequences of that. But he takes and he speaks to every single Christian. He says, whatever the price we pay in this life to stand in this faith and be obedient to this, he says, you go ahead and you stand in that. And even though it was going to cost the life of many people in order to stay faithful to what Peter called them to do by the Holy Spirit, he doesn't even hesitate. He doesn't flinch at all in, in declaring this to them and to us. Someone may wonder is it, if it's really necessary for Peter to make his call, this call <clears throat> to Christians to stand. And the fact of the matter it is that it is. I got saved in 1980. I know many people who've continued to walk with the Lord from the time that I got saved, and they're among the great blessings and memories in my life 
I love it when I go back to my hometown and they're continuing to walk with the Lord and continue to grow in the Lord. It excites me. I can't tell you how many people don't and how many people haven't continued. They've walked away from their calling. They've walked away from their obedience to the Lord. They've walked away from their excitement and their enthusiasm for the Lord. And it's a terrible thing. And the light of the elements here, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the price that was paid for us to live a different kind of life and then to abandon that. And I want to say, not with the idea of beating anyone up today, but if you are a Christian and you have settled into a life of compromise and lukewarmness and disobedience, you need to repent of that this morning in order to partake of the Lord's Supper and, and to take care of that before you partake of the Lord's Supper today. Relatively few people continue to walk full on for the Lord when the years start to stretch into decades. And yet that's exactly what Peter is calling upon every single Christian to do. This is the faith This is the price that was paid to give us this faith to live. And this is what we are to uh, stand in. And so we need to hear this call to stand. So often people will abandon their faith the second it begins to cost them something. The first time it threatens to cost them of a relationship or a valued relationship. Or a promotion because the priorities are all goofed up in terms of what they want and what I know that God calls my life to be or whatever it is. And so the importance of the exhortation, the reminder to stand uncompromisingly in this faith. Now at the same time, I would never want to represent this Christian life as one that's just kind of lived out in a grim obedience, you know, to the Word of God. That's not the Christianity of the Bible. And that is not the Christianity Peter describes here. And it's not the Christianity that we know personally. It is a privilege to live our lives as Christians in this world. For all of the difficulties, for all of the persecution, for all of the trial, for all of the spiritual warfare, for all of the rejection, it is an indescribable privilege to be able to live this life. And it truly is the grace of God, as Peter described it there in verse 12. The blessings of this Christian life... Don't just match the difficulties that we face or the price that we pay to walk as Christians. The blessings that are ours as Christians completely overwhelm any price that we pay to remain faithful to the Lord. The blessings of that life we possess, as I've already mentioned, peace with God. I go to bed every single night. I'm not at war with God anymore. I get a great night's sleep. My final thought is concerning him. My first thought in the morning is concerning him. I'm on good terms with my creator, the God of the universe, and you are too. What kind of a blessing 
is that. And then the peace of God, salvation, forgiveness, the absolute confidence of heaven. I never wonder whether I'm going to be in heaven or not. I've got reservations. A relationship with God, one of the blessings. To be God's child, Christian fellowship. To have a meaning and a purpose in life that the world knows nothing about and we knew nothing about until we became Christians. And to live a life that is true, as Peter says here, based upon the truth, the truth about God, the truth about salvation, the truth about life. And then the privilege of being used by God, the privilege of sharing the gospel, the privilege of living a life like our Savior and knowing that as we do that, we will never do any true harm to anyone else. And on and on and on and on and on and on and on. We could go this morning. This is the greatest life a person can live. And we get to live it. And we give God all of the honor and all of the glory and all of the praise for the privilege because it required the death of his son to make it so related to our lives. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, we'll be passing out the bread in just a moment as we're led in worship. And you take that cracker, symbol of Jesus' body, and you hold on to it. <clears throat> and we'll pray together and we'll partake together. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you can put your faith or your trust, you can say to God right now, God, I believe that I am a sinner and that my sin has separated me from you. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he was buried and rose again on the third day and that he's the Savior that pleases you. And so I put my faith in Jesus and I give you my life this morning. And if you'll do that this morning, God's Holy Spirit will come into your life right now. This nanosecond. And you'll be born again. And after the service, we can give you a Bible and explain the full implications of what it is that you've done. But you can partake of the Lord's Supper with us right now. But if you're not a Christian yet, don't partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. That's reserved for when you do become a Christian. But continue to enjoy the service as we continue the service. And this morning as we partake of the bread... <clears throat> the symbol of the body of Jesus and the price that was paid in order for us to be saved and forgiven. All I want us to do is to just spend some time worshiping the Lord and giving Him thanks and just celebrating the privilege of being able to live this Christian life. Not as a grim duty, but is a great, great privilege in our life. And if we've settled down into some kind of thing as it relates to our Christian life that we're just kind of trudging through this thing, you know, with a grim responsibility and diligence and all, then we're missing half of Christianity and what it's supposed to be. Let's celebrate the Lord today. Let's celebrate despite all of the demands, and this is a very upfront, 
uh, uncensored kind of letter that Paul is, Peter is very clear about what it means to be a Christian. And we look at it and we've studied it together and we come to the end of it and we say, thank you, God, for the privilege of being able to live this life in light of the options which we tried before we came to know the Lord. Let's give him praise. Let's give him worship and thanksgiving this morning. And may anything less than a sense of privilege in our life related to our Christian life be replaced with privilege as we enjoy the Lord's Supper this morning. So if the men would come forward and the worship team come forward, we will serve the Lord's Supper.